This is the Baymall Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, I'm with Marty and Reed Dent as we begin our journey deep into the prophecy of Isaiah by considering what we can learn from Abraham Joshua Heschel about the prophetic pathos. We have a uh, good little series here to kick off season session eight. And we probably ought to do some setup. Like I want to do, what was there, Brent? Was there 10, 12 episodes that I have? And I think the rest of the team's going to add to that but we got a good 10 to 15 episodes at least of isaiah conversation and it's hard to just dive right in it's been a while since we did prophets session two it was a long time ago so uh we've learned some things i actually have some questions to to set us up if if you don't mind well why not we're either going to say later or we're going to answer them i i want to know you know just just thinking through the mind of a bama listener who you know, they listen to everything, but they begrudgingly listen to session two <laughs> and and really like, like, haven't we gone past that? We got to Jesus. We understand. We see the, and yet, I get it. Jesus quoted Isaiah. He fulfilled Isaiah. And I know fulfilling is, you know, not quite what I originally thought. I know that it's more about like, you know, what. Like, I understand all that, but now that we've got to Jesus, why do we need to go back to Isaiah? What is the what is the point of reading Isaiah? I guess there is none. We should just cancel. I guess that's it. Um, thanks, everybody. We'll talk to you again soon. There you go. Uh, Reed's got a series up on Psalms. Up next on the Baymont Podcast. All right. We already talked about that, too. We don't need to... I think we're done. We did the whole Bible. <laughs> I think Reed's making a, a great point in his wonderful reedy kind of a way. Um, cause yeah, the, the, the Bible is this never ending wrestling matching conversation. And I had to go study some more, um, cause I wasn't prepared to do an in-depth and we're still not going super in-depth, but I wasn't, I wasn't prepared to go a layer deeper in Isaiah. It's a big, big book, big conversation, big prophet. Is this going to be like a, a verse by verse, like we did with John? Not even a little, not even a little. We've been doing that for three years. So we took one whole year to do John. There's three times as many chapters. So not even a little. We're not even going to get close to verse by verse, but section by section. I mean, last time we did a podcast for each one of the voices that I personally liked and identified for. But uh, let's go one layer deeper and go like two or three episodes per each one of those sections. So that's... That's kind of what we're going to do. But yeah, it's, it is. It's the most quoted uh, book by Jesus. Most quoted. Jesus quotes all three parts of Tanakh. Uh, Psalms being the most quoted in Ketuvim. Isaiah being the most quoted in the Nevahim. And then Deuteronomy being the most quoted in Torah. So probably, and I did a big study, uh, Brent, in preparation. I didn't know which prophets I wanted to dive deep in. So I just read the whole section of my library uh, I just read all the sources I had on prophets. 80, 90% of them were just garbage, just pure garbage. But <laughs> how, was, ma- how many books is that? Uh, wasn't nearly as much as you might think. I thought it was going to be more. And my prophets section is very weak, which probably even relates to Brent's question here. Like, why would we want to do, I mean, that's probably not the popular portion of, of scripture. So yeah, I probably read through, I probably had uh, 12 of my own sources. Maybe a few of those were multi-volume sources in one volume 
whatever I'm trying to say, uh, two or three books in one volume. Um, but yeah, I, I, the only two prophets that I can, I mean, I looked at Nahum, I looked at Habakkuk, I did two sources on Jonah and I feel like I've like exhausted in so many ways, my thoughts on Jonah on so many different uh, platforms. But, um, the only two prophets I was drawn to were Isaiah and Hosea. And, uh, so, so I don't know if I'll do a Hosea series, maybe next season. I don't know, but, um, those are the only two where the there felt like there was more to say at this point, which means I just need to keep studying. But that's why that's why for me, I don't know for the typical Bayma listener, but that's that's why it matters for me. Well, and I guess that sort of leads into my next question. As you've read all of these terrible takes on Isaiah and other prophets, what is and specifically about Isaiah, where do scholars and other thinkers go wrong when they're trying to tackle Isaiah? Like, what is it about this book that that is the typical snare or thing that trips someone up when they're trying to understand what's going on here. Well, I would say this is true for all the prophets and not just Isaiah. Um, And I know that there are sources that don't do this. So I'm going to get like a million emails telling me I need to read a bunch of books that I don't have time to read. But uh, I know that the pool that I swam in for this whole study fell into two camps. You either have a very conservative fundamentalist reading of scripture that is very all these prophets are predicting the future. Uh, I'm going to interpret this through very straight evangelical theology, which is completely irrelevant to the prophetic conversation in the Old Testament. Um, just your typical um, evangelical rendering and reading that I think where a lot of us are used to. Or you had the very, very liberal textual critical, um, let's just zoom up here and nobody's going to assume that there's really any so I'm working on this other project, which will remain nameless at the moment. But I, one of the things that this scholar um, I'm studying, Dr. Ephraim Radner, invited um, his his listeners to do was to take scripture seriously. And he's saying that in an academic setting. And I feel like so much of textual criticism does not take the scripture as something coming, a, a piece of theology from God, seriously. It just takes uh, as a piece of literature and then analyzes it to death and dissects it, and I find a lot of value in that. And then I'm just, it's just lifeless at the end. And so that was the two sides of the pool that just, I'm just banging my head against a wall uh, all summer. So there you go. Okay, final final question. And I think this is going to be the one where you're like, uh, we'll get to that. <laughs> but what are the what are the hooks or the frameworks that I need to understand Isaiah better than I did before. We're not doing verse by verse. We're not going to spend three years in it. But like, if we do want to go one layer deeper in Isaiah than what we've done before, what what are the things that I need to actually accomplish that? We will probably talk a bunch about that. Now, Reed, I recently heard in a message that you preached happened to be on Isaiah. You talked about, were there like six sections you referred to? In Isaiah, not not the voices that we talked about in season two, but you like I felt like you said there were almost six different periods, historical periods that Isaiah dealt with. Did you actually have a source that identified that in a particular way? Well, no, the I think the thing that you're thinking of that I said, um, I gave a sermon trying to trace 
the you know the history the actual mm -hmm. time and places and people surrounding the prophecies in Isaiah and I sort of broke that uh history of Ahaz uh and Judah specifically into six parts like narrative parts oh. that was just entirely something that I came up with okay sure um not not what I would I would not say that as a framework for understanding like the whole history of Isaiah or anything like that Sure. Um, it was a it was a pastoral move trying to help our college students find something just to resonate with, like because you know you gloss when you get to the history stuff. Yeah. Uh, and so trying to help uh, people see how does the the particular person and nation that Isaiah is speaking to, how does that have anything to do with with us? That was that was what I was talking about. Sure. Yep. I found it intriguing. I, I found it helpful too. Um, mm. I think that. Isaiah is this huge book, and I still, with all the study I've done, I still have these knee-jerk reactions, and I just, whenever I open my Bible, there's all this stuff that just automatically happens because of my upbringing, mm -hmm. and I open Isaiah, and I just, even though I'm a historical context, you know, nerd, mm -hmm. I still tend to lose. I, I enjoy any framework like that that allows me to go, okay, this is where this prophet's landing. This is where I can relate to. It's like it serves as doorways for me to walk into it and relating to Brent's question. Like, oh, I can, I know what that door is. I can walk through that door because that relates to, mm -hmm. you know, whatever, whatever experience I have, a similar experience, similar season in my own life. So it was a pastoral move, but a good one. I did find, I mean, we're going to talk about Heschel, but I found Heschel's, uh, his, just kind of report on the history going on around Isaiah, extremely helpful. Sure. Right. Yeah. And that might be a, a good segue to, do you got anything else, Brent, or should we, should we dive in? Well, I was just going to ask if we should uh, link Reed's sermon. We probably should. The problem is which one. Uh, he's already done a couple of that. They're, they're doing a whole series right now at, at CCF, and I've really enjoyed uh, what everybody's bringing in the pro they're not just doing Isaiah. They're focusing on Isaiah, but they're doing a bunch of others too. Marty's going to do one of those. I am. I am going to talk on Micah if I remember correctly. Accurate. <laughs> not one of your two, two prophets nope. that you, <laughs> and I gave him the choice. I said, what do you want to talk about? And he said, Micah. Yeah. Yeah. All right. There you go. Yep. Yeah. I felt like that's what the Holy spirit was prodding me with. So who would be I to kick against the goads? Mm. Well, we'll figure out the right uh, sermon to link and we'll link okay. whatever, whatever we get. Okay. I think this one was just called History, right? The one we were just immediately talking about, right? That was how, that's how it shows up on our podcast feed, yeah. Uh, yeah, definitely not the title. Reed's proud about his titles and history would not cut it. Thank you. It's, if I tried to put my titles on the podcast episodes, it wouldn't, it wouldn't fit. Yeah, that's correct. What, what is the full title? Uh, let me tell you, Brent. Um, let me pull it up really quick. There's always multiple titles this is a this is a this is a read uh, a readism it's like. a it's a thing yeah it's kind of what i'm known for around ccf is that i always give my sermons multiple titles anywhere from i mean sometimes there's just one but usually anywhere from three to seven titles because why should you have to pick just one i mean sure here are the, here is the title of the sermon marty is talking about the first title is this you were afraid you made the moment everything, you gave away your awe, you forgot your calling, you doubled down, and the ungods shall utterly vanish. That was title one. Title two, prophecy needs place. Title three, dear Judah, dear Truman. Uh, that was it. That was the title. <laughs> the uh, David Crowder album, A Collision or 3 plus 4 equals 7. 
dual title in the title. Yeah. And one of the tracks, uh, the 11 second track titled repeat return or when the seventh angel sounded his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven, which said the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever and second, et cetera, which probably <laughs> took more than 11 seconds to say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think you two should hang out probably. Maybe. Or W.H. Auden wrote um, a long form poem called The Age of Anxiety. And uh, he has a section in there where they're naming a club and it gets a bunch of oars, oars, oars. Or there's another book called Lost in the Cosmos by Walker Percy that actually has like eight titles on the inside of the title page. And <laughs> it's one of the best books ever written. So there's, there's you know, smart people. We, we do smart things. <laughs> well, with that, speaking of smart people, <laughs> speaking of smart people, the, the, the conversation for me, I've kind of drafted this episode and Reed's kind of drafted the next episode's conversation. I drafted mine around Abraham Joshua Heschel's, I mean, it's a tome, but the prophets. And it really is a two, I feel like it's two books. It definitely has two parts, separated and distinguished in two parts. But it is, let's see here, how many, we have about just shy of 650 pages. So 630 something. It is a work. Um but just full of goodness. And I've kind of used that to uh, serve as an outline for my intro and set up to prophets as we get kind of focused on Isaiah. But really, it, you can't just talk about Isaiah without talking about prophets in general. So uh, we're going to do that this episode and next episode, kind of with our eyes pointed towards Isaiah and let that kind of set us up in our conversation. But um, it's a really cool work. The first the first part of Heschel's book basically uh, sets up just the idea of like, what is the manner? What is the manner of a prophet right before he spends the rest of part one, basically jumping through uh, not every single prophet, but many, many of the prophets. He's going to he's going to walk through. Um, I'm trying to get to my table of contents here. Uh Isaiah, he's going to split it up into first Isaiah and second Isaiah. That's a very, very common move academically, by the way. Um, lots of different arguments about how many authors, how many redactors, how many voices. You heard me in session two talk about four voices of Isaiah. I would say the dominant move I ran into all summer was pretty much an indisputed claim that you have one and two, at the very least one and two, Isaiah one through 39 and then 40 through 66. But he deals with that. He talks about uh, Amos. He talks about Hosea. He talks about Micah and Jeremiah and Habakkuk. Um, but he has this opening chapter, and I just thought all the little subtitles within the chapter, all the subsections, uh, were just um, so fun to – he's talking about what is a prophet. He has things like um, luminous and explosive. Good choice of words there. That feels very – Reed Dent-esque, luminous and explosive. Those are great words. Uh, the highest good, one octave too high. Um, a, pro a prophet being an iconoclast. Um, uh, austerity and compassion, sweeping allegations. I love this phrase. I, I think I have this. I'm probably going to use this phrase so much people are going to get tired of it. But this this subtitle here, few are guilty, all are responsible. I... Loved that phrase. Few are guilty. All are not that not none are guilty. There are some folks that the prophets will directly point 
a prophetic word at, usually people in power, people of influence. Um, there are some that are guilty, and those things are made clear. But the but the true invitation of the prophet is for us to hear that all are responsible. None of us get to read the prophet and say, oh yeah, those guys. It's about them. The prophet is inviting all of us on some level to be, and I just loved that phrase. Does that hit you in any particular way, Reed? Well, I, I, what I was thinking as you were saying that is that the, I mean, yes, I love that phrase. And that the prophet uh, considers himself to also be a part of that same group. Um, that the prophet, yes. the pro, there's a sense of solidarity, right? Um, which we can talk about a little bit if you want to. I mean, I, I think uh, we have a picture of, I have a picture of prophet um, that's like the the sort of televangelist or person out on the quad, like yelling at people. And it's a very accusatory, like you, 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 you're so bad. Yep. And it's not that the prophets aren't making accusations, but uh, Heschel talks about the kind of essentialness of compassion that when they get angry and riled up, it's not because they're like on a moral high horse or something that they think they are better. It comes from this place of compassion. I am in this thing with you. I am speaking to you as one of you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the, the nature of this conversation, not the, not, not the you, but the we, this solidarity idea um, seems to go wider than just between profit and audience. Like one of the things that we're going to talk hopefully a lot about before we're done with this episode today is what like Heschel's infatuated with this idea of pathos. And so there is a we element. There is a, a solidarity between the prophet and God as well. It almost feels priestly, like the prophet stands in the middle of this gap between God and the people. But solidarity seems to kind of envelop and and just cloak all of it. Um, and, and so that's, um, that's actually super, but you, do you enjoy, I know. Well, so I was actually reading the cultural background study Bible introduction to Isaiah. And they were talking about how other nations around Israel who had prophets, it wasn't like that. Like the, the idea of addressing the whole nation was an idea unique to Israel and the people of God, whereas the other prophets in other nations were typically just addressing the king. Yeah, I did. I did encounter that in some of the sources, and I think Heschel deals with that, especially in part two of his work as well, where where he really is going to start to to home in on what what are all the conceptions of a prophet, and what you know we we have all these oh a prophet is this a prophet, and he's going to dismantle almost all those categories that we easily slip a prophet into and say, but they, but they were different than that. Like we might be used to that over here, but they weren't that they were, they were more than that, or they were something else. And that's part of what I loved about part two of, of his book. But I know you're familiar with this work, Reed, you've uh, looked into Heschel quite a bit. Did you, did you like that opening chapter of the manner of a prophet? Yeah. I mean, I first, I, I first encountered this book, I don't know, a decade or more ago. I've returned to it several times. I'm actually using it again right now in our study on the prophets of CCF. Uh, this first chapter, what manner of man is the prophet? I think is one of just the best chapters of scholarship 
of any kind on anything because Heschel isn't like he doesn't suck the life out of it. Like he's writing about things uh, in detail and thoroughly. But, you know, you read you know how it is reading scholarship and like Heschel has a fire like there is a real spirit in this thing. Yes. It feels I mean, as he writes about prophets, it feels almost prophetic to me. Right. Um, yeah, it's this this chapter is like if I had a Hall of Fame um, of chapters of books that I've read, this first chapter would definitely be in that Hall of Fame. I like that. And, and it actually, so then you get to chapter four and it jumps into Isaiah. And there is this section where Heschel does like just some pretty basic, what I would call historical context work. And it's so funny that you said what you just said, because it feels it feels odd that he spends just a passing moment doing this. It wasn't like it was out of character for Heschel, but you're so used to all of this thunderous goodness in the midst of his writing that it, it felt a little interesting to read um, almost, I don't know if it's abstract, but just, you know, uh, historical context. But um, Heschel talked about how there wasn't this wealth gap, like some of the some of the ideas that we might bring with us. What does L call that? Um, presentism, presentivism? What'd she call that, Brent Billings? Presentism? Yeah. And and we bring that with us. And we kind of assume that Isaiah is talking about the same kind of things we experience and know today. And and Heschel makes a point of pointing out it was this was a people that was a whole people group, a whole nation that had made use of commercial enterprise. Unlike their neighbors to the north in the kingdom of Israel and Samaria, which had created a wealth gap that might resemble a lot of the things that we're more used to today. Um, Judah was its own unique situation. Talked about how this was in a lot of ways, quote, the most critical moment in Judah's history to date. So at this point in history, they found themselves kind of at the historical crux, the culmination of where their history had brought them. The future of Judah hung in the balance. Samaria was doomed, Heschel said. Um, uh, talks about Isaiah confronting Ahaz. And I noticed you pulled this exact same quote out in your own sermon too, Reed. Um, Isaiah asked Ahaz to believe that it was neither Pekah nor Rezin nor even the mighty Tiglath-Pelezer who governed history. The world was in the hands of God. So you have all these movers and shakers, powerful kingdoms, rulers that everybody assumes, well, those are the people that are guiding the hands of fate. Those are the people writing history right now. And Isaiah begs Ahaz, God through Isaiah begs Ahaz to reconsider that assumption. Um, what seemed to be a terror to Ahaz was a trifle to Isaiah was another quote that I really liked. Which is a shocking thing because the terror to Ahaz is also something I think we would call a terror. I mean, the the security of the nation is at risk. 100%. Because, I mean, yeah, he's he's got uh, Pekka and Rezin uh, to the north who are, like, threatening to, they're forming an alliance. They're going to come after Judah. And then you've got Assyria just kind of there lurking, you know, threatening, like, the, the superpower that's kind of threatening everything. And it's like, oh, gosh, are we going to... Are we going to survive as a people? Like, what are we supposed to do here? And uh, and Isaiah is like, this is not the most important thing. Right. This is, yeah, this is not, uh, 
like, yes, on the one hand, I mean, your your national destiny is important, but there are other things that Isaiah then goes on about so much more than whatever war is brewing. Yeah. And you just said we as a people, and again, reinforcing what we just said earlier, this isn't just about you know, few are guilty, but all are responsible. Mm-hmm. That same idea coming back to my next note and in my notes in front of me say in their moment of despair. So beyond Ahaz, beyond just the power and the king and the person that you feel like the prophecy is, well, that's about them. In the midst of that, we still have the despair, the darkness, the distress of an actual people, an actual nation with real life implications. And, and the message here is that God has not forgotten you. Even though your circumstances feel like he he has, God sees this moment. And then in their moments of elation, because there are these moments of triumph all throughout the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, these promises of restoration, experiences of, I think of, of Hezekiah's story much later, but these like, okay, we hit a turning point. But in their moments of elation, warning that they don't see what's really happening. So always this prophetic, and I think we're going to talk about this some in the next episode with you, Reed, uh, this, this, there's always this call, this prophetic call to realize that no matter what it looks like in front of us, chances are good. We at least, at the very least, don't see the whole picture. And at the most, we see something totally different than the truth that's actually there, whether it's goodness and triumph or distress and defeat we are not seeing everything that might be in front of us. Yeah, it's uh, <clears throat> at, at CCF. So we had back-to-back sermons on Amos and then on Isaiah. And Amos is coming from a different time when there is uh, a lot of prosperity and things are like going really well. And uh, we were talking about this at our sermon discussion today. Emily, the girl who preached that sermon, um, she said, you know, it's interesting how... Uh, in my sermon, I was talking about this idea of like what a fear of scarcity will cause you to do. It'll cause you to compromise uh, on your values or like forget your calling, right? Because yep. you got to hoard, you got. And then she's like, "But in his, in Amos, the word is abundance. But either way, whether it's scarcity or whether it's abundance, there is the possibility that you are going to set God aside. Like in your abundance, you will forget God. Yep. Uh, forget that God gave you the ability to accumulate that abundance. Yep. And in your scarcity, you will forget God because you're afraid. And so you'll do, you'll reach for anything that's close by here, Assyria, please help us. Yep. Uh, in order to not be, you know, wiped out. Correct. Correct. So yeah, the prophet, I think, always has something to uh, challenge. Yeah. So Heschel closes out this last, or this first Isaiah, the last section of this first Isaiah chapter with this, the prophetic call is this idea that if you're not going to trust the story, to use Bema language, if you're not going to trust the story, you will not remain. Your current lack of trust is not sustainable. And it's this plea from God where Heschel pulls us into this idea of pathos. Um, he is he is experiencing, and we'll talk a little bit more about what, what pathos means for Heschel. But the prophet is, again, the idea of solidarity. The prophet is experiencing God's sorrow. He's experiencing, there, there's a simple, when I first read this, I, I hated this idea theologically. But, I mean, it's Heschel, so who am I going to argue with? But <laughs> sympathy from the pro- from the prophet toward God. 
Hmm. Like because the prophet is sharing in solidarity of God's experience and sorrow and lament, the prophet has this sense of sympathy toward God. And and this idea that God longs to be with his people. This is not God separate from the heavens, but a God that wants to, I think, read at one point, you use the idea of, we often picture God and the prophets playing whack-a-mole yeah. and that concept. Yeah, just this, uh, when we think about how God regards the sin of the people, we sometimes have this picture of a, like a, I call it a holiness whack-a-mole, where God is like poised over the board with a giant divine hammer, and that anytime sin pops up, He's just going to be like, wham, and he's going to cr- he's going to crush it back down. Yep. Wham, 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 wham. And it it assumes a kind of uh, very like black and white binary of like sin and God's response to sin. It's almost mechanical and automated like, oh, there is sin. Whack. Uh, but the way that the prophets portray God is oftentimes more like um uh, like a husband who has been uh, spurned by his by his wife, by his lover, um, or uh, one that I resonate with is uh, just a father like contending with children uh, who will not listen, where there's like this tension between I love you so much and also you are driving me crazy and I don't know how much more I can take. Right. And just just to just to frame god in those very human relationships does a lot to show uh this isn't just like god as this gas of righteousness and holiness that then must choke out any time there is like a sin but god god is relating to you like someone in your family and uh <laughs> if you can be honest enough to see like you're not doing too well then you might understand God's not just angry. Uh, Heschel talks about this. Um, it, it's also that God is grieved. Yes. That God is sad, even disappointed. Like there are parts in the prophets where God says, you know, I called you out and I thought it was going to go like this. Like I thought you would listen to me and you didn't listen to me. Yep. Um, yep. Yeah. Yeah. And and that sets up like a few chapters later, Heschel will circle back around to the second part of Isaiah. And now the context has changed historically, and that context matters. So prior to that, they they were listening to the warning. Assyria's on their doorstep. Then it's going to be about, ba- but now they've been in Babylon. Now they've experienced the very real suffering. And yet Heschel will say, we're, but we're still in the middle of the pathos. And yet the pathos has now changed because of the context. Did you did you say what the chapter breaks are that he uses for these first and second parts? Yeah, 1 through 39 and then 40 through 66, okay. which is – that's the standard break that usually everybody will use because that's what at least everybody recognizes. Everything else is hotly debated. So, um, But in this second section – Now in the middle of this prophetic pathos, this experience of solidarity with God, now the prophet is bewildered at God's lack of action. So now the prophet looks around at the suffering and, okay, now now your justice, now your divine discipline has been experienced, but okay, but now we need to see your rescue, so where is it? And God reminds the prophet of the prophet's place. One of Heschel's uh, subtitles in the middle of that chapter, uh, who taught him the path of justice, referring to God, 
who who taught God the path of justice? And so sounds like Job. Yeah, absolutely. I had the exact same thought when I was reading that. Um, and and so Heschel will go through the section of the suffering servant. Obviously, Heschel's not a believer, uh, believing a Jew who follows Jesus. So uh, Heschel does not see Jesus in the suffering servant passage. I think there's even some comments here and there because um, he works in a world of Jewish and Christian scholarship. Um, but you get to see uh, Heschel's take on on the prophet and the prophet's suffering and the prophet's suffering with the people. Like the hard part, the hard way it is to pull apart, is this Isaiah or is this is this the people of God? And the answer is really both. You even see the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8, by the way, wrestling with this question. Is the prophet speaking about himself or somebody else? I know that Isaiah is experiencing suffering. It feels like this is also about everybody else's suffering. And the answer to that question is obviously yes. And then and then Heschel will close out the rest of part one um, outside of the other prophets with these kind of closing ideas and movements um, about uh, history, chastisement, and, and justice. Um, history in a conversation about um, Dr. Radner, I referenced him earlier in the same lecture that I'm thinking about. He also said uh, that history history is informed and defined by as a, as a theologian. History is defined by the prophets. The prophets are the one that get to frame what history is and what's happening in history through that prophetic pathos. Um, and, and so he has a chapter on that idea. He has a chapter on chastisement. That's what we're familiar with, with the prophets, this depressing chastisement. And yet Heschel breaks down that chastisement into some really helpful categories for me, talking about the futility, um, the futility that we're giving ourselves to, talking about the failure of freedom, like God gave us this freedom, kind of what Reed was referencing a moment ago. Like I thought this was, I gave you this freedom I built a vineyard thinking of Isaiah 5. I plant I planted it with a choicest vine. I cleared it of stones. I built the wall. I thought it would bear good fruit. I gave you the freedom, but that freedom failed because of how you chose to engage it. There's a failure of freedom. So then God says, so I'm going to take your freedom away. There's a suspension of freedom. I will suspend that freedom. And 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 then there's always this. What did we talk about in session two, Brent? With every single prophet, there was always a sprinkling of. That was a long time ago, but I bet you remember. Sprinkling of hope. Sprinkling of hope. And I love how Heschel worded it. Uh, he said this quote: "No word is God's last word." So God gives these prophetic words. He utters these prophecies of destruction and discipline and wrath, but no word is God's last word. God will have a word that comes after that. So there's a failure of freedom. There's a suspension of freedom. But then but then, because of this process, there's also a future. Um, and, then he, and then he talks about justice and um, talks about mishpat and zedekah, two words that we've talked about a lot on the podcast before, uh, justice and righteousness. Um, and then one of the things that he – that was clear to me in this um, – this chapter was a conversation about, I mean, he didn't say this in so many words. He's at a different point in modern, modern history when he was, when he was alive and writing, but he very much made a clear, like there, again, there was a solidarity of two, what are two distinct worldviews in our culture, which is 
personal moral responsibility and then social I hate to use the word social justice because it's such a buzzword that sets people off, but social togetherness and restoration, the social element and the personal moral element. What we separate into a conservative sociopolitical paradigm and a progressive liberal social, you know, sociopolitical paradigm. And he says the prophets bring both of these things together, clearly together, neither one of them missing, nor are they separate compartmentalized conversations and it goes back to that same idea of few are guilty, but all are responsible. So we have this personal and social, a vertical and horizontal nature to this thing that the prophets are are calling us to. Does that make you think of anything or have any thoughts to add to that? I mean, it just makes me wonder why we separate them. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. That just, just thinking about why we separate them. I think it's fun to keep that in mind as we go through Isaiah, because it's such a it's such a, a a temptation to idolatry in our culture or whatever our sociopolitical ideologies are that we cling to. And yet to pay attention as we look through Isaiah, this, this marriage of the personal moral responsible and the, and the social responsibility and both of those things working hand in hand and how you don't get one. Yeah, not only why we separate the two. But how that would even work when you when you step back and think about it? How could you ever really pursue social responsibility without personal moral responsibility? And how could you say there's any personal moral responsibility if it's not producing some level of social responsibility? It also makes me think of, um, and I think you you did do this. Maybe this was kind of building to the conclusion of the prophets back in session two, um, but another kind of false dichotomy that gets create that we create is um in prophetic language it would be the division between idolatry and injustice right and how some people say oh the biggest problem in our world is idolatry that we are giving ourselves over to the norms of the culture yep. and we're not living faithfully to god and that other people would say, no, the biggest problem is injustice, that there are all these places where there is not fairness or equity, where there is oppression, and we're not doing anything about that. And like the liberal side tends to say, yeah, we can just take care of that. We don't need God in the picture. And the conservative side tends to say, oh, all that we need to do is just like focus on God and everything will just work out or it won't matter in the end anyway. And um, the prophets hold them together not even just side by side, but in like a mutually reinforcing kind of relationship, there is like a cause and effect um, cycle between them where if you're worshiping the wrong thing, then yes, you will be, uh, and we'll get, actually, we'll, we'll talk about this some more in the next episode with uh, Brueggemann's prophetic imagination. So I think I might leave this actually on the table for now, give a great big teaser and then just leave it. I like that. Uh, but that is a... Yeah, that's a substantial part of what he's talking about. He's noticing this dichotomy that's not really real. Yeah, and I, I, as you were saying that, I thought back to session two years ago, and it has been years ago, Brent, um, where we we like purposely drew some lines in the sand to almost tongue in cheek pull us into this. Like, is it story A or story B? But it didn't take very long. You actually couldn't maintain that for very long because you'd get to these other prophets where they're so interwoven together. It's no longer an either or. It was like helpful for us to pull them apart so we could look at them. But eventually it's like, oh, you 
actually idolatry is all wrapped up in injustice and and injustice is coming from idolatry and you can't pull these two things apart. I actually remember this because back then I was uh, just your friend and a listener. I was not on the show. And I remember texting you about this um, like on the side and saying, Marty, I'm pretty sure it's both. I'm pretty sure it's both. And you're like, yeah, 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 we're going to get to it. Just wait. And then finally you were like, hey, guess what, everybody? It's both. (laughs) We were so clever back then. Oh, so So clever. You got me hook, line, and sinker because I, you know, I had a spot in my notes for every prophet where I was going to put which one it was. And then I'm like... I didn't even let Brennan on the on the secret. Oh, I can picture your notebook now. That's beautiful, Brent. That is beautiful. All right, so we'll close this thing out. Heschel has a second part to this tome, like this big old book, and it was it was it was it's the smallest part of notes on my document in front of me, but it was my it was my favorite part of the study because it's where he took all. It was almost the frustrating part of the study, which is why it was so good. Because I thought I would understand prophets, and then I would turn the page and be like, only that doesn't work, so it's not that. And I'd be like, okay, I think it's this. And the next chapter would be like, nope, it's not that either. Okay, it's probably this. And it's like he was anticipating where my brain was going, <laughs> and he just kept dismantling all the things that <laughs> that I thought. But you get to the second part of the book. This book is 700 pages, by the way. How far it is. into it are you when you get to the second part? Second part would be... Oh, let's see here. Let me get to my table of contents. In my book, uh, page 285 is where volume two starts. And it goes from 285 to 627. So 400 pages of dismantling your ideas. And I think actually, just as a point of fact, I think this was originally published as two separate volumes and then now is just published as a single work. Yeah, that's the impression that I got. Um, he starts by really digging into this site. Like he's been mentioning pathos. He's said enough about it that it's been helpful, but he really wants to dive into it. So he talks about pathos from a theological perspective, the theology of pathos. He then talks about it philosophically, which I I always never like to admit I like philosophy, but it's, that's when Heschel's like, I feel like he's just banging on all cylinders when he's doing his philosophical thing. Uh, so he talks about the philosophy of pathos, um, he talks about what he calls anthropopathy, anthropopathy, anthropopathy of of pathos. I I looked it up and it was not in my dictionary. So I there you go. I believe he gives a he explains what he means when he says that, and it's connected to the same idea of pe- of pathos as it's connected to anthropology. And he's putting these ideas together. Oh, uh, is this related to? I'm looking it up on the internet because that has all definitions, Brent. Um, <laughs> and anthropopathy. Uh, is ascribing human passions or feelings to beings or being or beings that are not human. So it's like an anthropomorphism. Um, instead of giving a being though, like uh, human physical characteristics, you're attributing emotional characteristics to a deity. Right. That idea of pathos going both directions. Right. So like when we're talking about God as a disappointed father or a spurned lover and having those feelings, that's what we're talking about. Right. Which bridges into the next section, which is on wrath, which exactly what Reed's talking about. And and you get these, if there are helpful handles when we're thinking about wrath, it's that, it's that ability for us to relate on those levels. And so 
Heschel talks about that. He talks about the meaning of, of wrath and the mystery of wrath. Dude, this chapter, by the way, is also phenomenal. Yes. I love this chapter. Um, reminds me of uh, you. You were making this point uh, in the earlier sessions about the difference between disciplining and punishing, and that the idea between or the idea behind wrath is that it is not destructive. Yes. Um, it is not merely like punitive, right? But that it is meant to be corrective. Correct. Right. And that, of course, like, I mean, I get that some of us might be um, uncomfortable with the idea of a God who gets angry. Uh, And I want to, by the way, I like to draw a distinction for people and say, like, there is a difference between God being an angry God and God being a God who gets angry. Oh, yeah. Just like just like there is a difference between, like, if you grew up in a household with an angry parent like, you know what I'm talking about. Like, there's a difference between that and a parent who gets angry. And, of course, there are many occasions in which parents should get angry. That if you're not getting angry, like, you're not paying attention because right. we know how kids can be. Yep. And so I, I get that the idea of a God being wrathful or angry or acting out of that. And Heschel talks about this a lot. That it is, like, it is not core to the nature of God's being. But it is something that is occasioned and that it motivates God's action towards setting things right. Um, but that, uh, you know, we if we have a God who does not get angry at the situation in the world, then. Right. Well, I mean, frankly, that's not a that's not a God that I would want. That's not. Yeah, that's not the option that we want to lean towards either. And we immediately kind of bump into realizing that. But of course he will not remain angry forever is what the, it's like the refrain, right? He's not going right. to hold that anger forever. It's the love and mercy that endure forever. Right. Anyway, Heschel, Heschel does an incredible job of laying all this out. And this is why I wanted to get into this on this episode is these are the questions that immediately come up when we start wrestling with the prophets. Like part of it is like, man, why are you just reviewing Heschel's book? A, because I want to introduce you to a great resource. And there's a lot of you that won't take the time to read it, so why not be able to glean something from it for those that won't? Mm-hmm. But but B, these are the core issues that Heschel's getting at. These are the things that come to mind when we think about prophecy. It's why it's hard to listen to prophecy, because we have to wrestle with the wrath of God and its proper place in those things. The next few chapters, there's going to be a chapter on chapters on the things that prophecy isn't. It's not ecstasy. It's not it's not just poetic inspiration, meaning like not divine inspiration, but just like like any – it's not just art coming to life. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not psychosis. Um, and again, these are the things that come up when you read the prophets. What's going on here? Is God like – is there an audible voice? Is the prophet just trans – when we study the prophets, these are the things that that come up for us, that we wrestle with, that we think about, that kind of get stuck in our head and keep us from being able to truly lean into – the prophet and the ways that we need to. And then there are some closing chapters that Heschel gives. Uh, He gives an explanation of inspiration as far as he understands it and sees it. Not that necessarily all of us would agree on every point, but an explanation of what inspiration is. Do you remember enough at this point to just give a a brief, here's how he sees it? Not that I would be confident that I had represented it correctly. So. Okay. Uh, I was hoping you weren't going to ask, but there you go. <laughs> Take that point uh, out, Brent. 
There's, yeah. always, there's always a little bit of hope, right? Always a little bit of hope. Um, he has a chapter on what he calls event and experience that they're like, again, there's a context to prophecy. It's not just abstract in the heavens talking. There's a time and a place event and experience um, has a chapter on prophet, priest, and king, which I thought was very good. That idea gets tossed around a lot. I've done a few teachings on uh, similar concepts. But the big takeaway for me and the reason I wanted to bring all this up was the idea that I found so helpful from Heschel was that idea of pathos. It helped me frame what a prophet is. A prophet is somebody who is experiencing the reality of what God has experienced, there is that solidarity between the prophet and the people and the prophet and God. And this triangulation of this moment in history where the prophet is truly experiencing the grief, the lament, the anger, the frustration, seeing the injustice. And, it, and it's truly this experience that the prophet shares it's not something they learn. It's not something they see from a distance. It's something that they experience on their insights. And that's where prophecy comes from. And so, and, and that's going to be connection to the same idea of inspiration that um, you were asking about earlier, but I'm not clear enough. Yeah. And my memory is somewhat shaky. So, but anyway, those are the, those are the things that were so important for me when it came to that, that idea of pathos helped me reframe the relationship between a prophet and prophecy before I got into Isaiah. For sure. I think it's probably helpful just for people who aren't familiar with the word pathos. Um, it just, it has to do with uh, evoking like at an emotional level or appealing to an emotional level or an emotional experience. Right. As opposed to something that is like um, overly rational. It's not that pathos is irrational, Correct. It's just other than rational. Right. Uh, and so when we read the prophets, um, and I completely agree with you. Well, actually, one of the one of the one liners that Heschel has in that opening chapter, uh, he says, uh, the prophet is a man who feels fiercely. Yes. Yes. And that is where the message is coming from. And for folks like me, this presents a challenge. Because, and I know, Marty, you're way more comfortable with emotions than uh, obviously oh, please. I. <laughs> oh, please. Well, both of us, right? Like we, yes. we more live naturally in the, the analytical, the logical, yep. the rational. And that's fine. There is a place for that. Absolutely. However, there are some of us who hold the faith or ideas about our faith in a way that is like, there is like a tyranny of the rational and that anything that is emotional um, or an appeal like from pathos is suspicious or at the very least it's kind of weak and flimsy. And until it has like the rigor and the buttressing, the fortitude of all of our like um, logical arguments, then we kind of like shouldn't, trust it or listen to it so much. But the prophet says, I don't care about like your logic. I don't care if you're, uh, you're not, I'm not asking you to create a systematic theology from my images of God as husband or father. I'm, this is not my point. 
Yeah, I am right. trying to get you to understand at a deep emotional level what God actually feels about this, because sometimes what we need uh, is emotion to actually get us to do something, right? Like, you know, you can have lots of logical thoughts that'll get you thinking nice things or confusing or perplexing things, and you can sit in your chair and you can stare at the wall and you can think, 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 and you can get out your notebook and you can make your notes. But to actually get somebody up off their butt and out doing something, I mean, think about uh, think about Martin Luther King Jr. and what has been passed down to us and what really resonates like across the decades since his time. I would call him a prophet, by the way, and if that's controversial, I'm sorry. But I would I see it that way. And, the, and like his speeches, right? His speeches moved people to action for justice. It moved them to compassion. And I mean, if you read them, like there are certainly speeches where he's going through details of like particular spats with unions or like trade workers or whatever. But like the stuff that got the nation turning and moving was that stuff like classic, the I have a dream speech. Um, or the mountaintop speech, and you listen to that, and you're like, okay, I don't need, I don't need to logically. Nothing about this has to be proven. Like the the pathos in it is what gives it its authority. Yeah, and and to just sit in that same example, and yet there are very practical. I think the other thing we do with prophets is we take the snippets, the I have the dream paragraph, the I have a dream paragraph, mm-hmm. the mount, and we and we divorce those from the. So you're right. He wasn't just downloading data, but nor was he merely reciting poetry because that I have a dream speech has minutes of very fiery social critique mm-hmm. of things that were very practical and justice oriented towards you know whatever and and so we can't separate those either. We either love to focus on the poetry of it, or we try mm-hmm. to make it rational and logical. And it's neither of those two things. It's like this, it's this holy other mm-hmm. prophetic pathos. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a great spot to set us up for next week's conversation. Cause we got to talk about the prophetic imagination next. So we got the prophetic pathos, but then we got to talk about the prophetic imagination. And so that's next Brent Billings. Okay. Well, uh, listeners can go to bamonaselfchip.com to find the show notes. We have uh, quite a few things in there. You can find a group to get into. You can find upcoming events. Our contact page will give you the best and most up-to-date way to get in touch with us. So thanks for joining us on the Bamo Podcast. We'll talk to you again soon. Um, I would work something about the prophetic pathos into that. Pay, isn't it pay? I think it's pathos, just if we're going to... Well, I've also heard pay, pathos. Let's see. Pay, pathos. Pay, pathos, pathos is what the dictionary pronunciation is. Yep. Okay, great. Pathos. Well, let's clear that up now so I don't have to hear from them for the rest of the time. Pathos. Pathos. Plosives. Pathos. Yeah, that'll that'll be how it goes. Anyway, Brent, I was trying to talk about football, and you interrupted me um, with Bayma stuff about the prophetic pathos. I'm going to start the episode right now with the term pathos. I'm going to get you guys rolling on it. Okay, I'm going to set set the speed. 
This is the Baymall Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today I'm with Marty and Reed Dent as we begin our journey deep into the prophecy of Isaiah by considering what we can learn from Abraham Joshua Heschel about the prophetic pathos. Pathos. Dang it. Dang it. I was so close. Okay. Should I just redo the whole intro? Yeah. You sure should. Pathos. There's your blooper Uh, reel. Both, both syllables. I'm never going to say it correctly now. Both syllables are different than I thought. You thought it was pathos. I thought pat. No, I guess I thought pathos. pathos. So you had one of them right. I don't know what I thought. You're really ruining our chances for a football blooper reel right now. Because this is going to be it. (laughs) Is this going to be it? I don't know. Okay. Pathos. Ugh. I also I I agree. I don't like that pronunciation, but that's what it that's what it says. And we are good prescriptivists. There's not even an alternative. It's the only listed pronunciation. Whatever whatever the prescriptivist authorities that be say is what we're gonna do. 